had a thought. Suppose we just had one minute to open that door and that door. I won't try saying anything while you're doing it because you won't hear because of the traffic. If we just open those doors, get a breeze through for a minute and then that might give us a good start. Sorry? There's a fan, yes. It's like being in Sri Lanka. leave those doors open if people don't mind that. Are you getting a breeze? It's making no difference whatsoever to me up here. But <laughs> right, is that, is the, is the, um, is the traffic noise disturbing for listening? Sorry? When the traffic lights change, right. Right, um, I'm gonna, uh, let's see. Alfred, could you be on door duty? And if it becomes noisy, just, just close those doors. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear your voice as we come to wait upon you in your word. Help us not to be distracted or uh, put off by circumstances, but just to be able to concentrate on you. And we pray that you would speak to us as a church because we need your direction and help and provision. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been looking at the matter of eldership. Um, to help us find the will of God regarding future ministry at Calvary Church by going back to first principles. We're looking to, we've been looking for an assistant pastor. We haven't yet succeeded in that. It would be really nice if the Bible gave us the email address of this person, but it doesn't. But God does promise to provide and guide his people in accordance with his word and by his spirit. So presumably that is a better way of doing it than simply giving us his email address. It involves us in praying and thinking and looking at our situation and learning to trust God and learning about his ways, not just that we've read some, it happened to somebody else in a book, but that we ourselves as a church learn to find that God is faithful. The teaching in the book of Isaiah is to trust the Lord. It's emphasized again and again and again and again. And even the subject of uh, shepherding takes us back to the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. I set out with some questions, and I'm pleased to say that a good number of them have been answered. So we looked at the question, why elders? And I said, actually, there's a better question and a deeper question, which is, why the church? And the answer to that question is that the church is Jesus Christ's single project to build his church, to bring in the lost, to beautify the ugly, to become his bride. That is what Jesus Christ is doing. That is what this period of time is all about. That's why the world hasn't gone straight to the day of judgment, because Christ is building his church. Uh, and let me just say, 
this talk is an in-house talk for, for our church, for Christian people. But if you're not a Christian person and you're observing this, let me say that this project of Jesus Christ to build his church is the most important thing in the whole world. It's the most important thing for any human being not to be left outside that project, but to be part of it. And that's what being a Christian is, and you need to become a Christian and to be part of that project if you're not at this moment. Going back to the question, why elders? We discover that elders are an indispensable layer in the process of what Jesus Christ is doing. And we also asked the question, what are elders? And we came up with a variety of answers. They're overseers, they're older ones, they're shepherds, they're, they manage the affairs of the church, they're to be role models and example setters. And what are they like? Well, they're like Jesus Christ. They're meant to be like him and they are servants. And their particular serving role is to serve by leading. We also ask the question, how do you get them? Uh, and the answer is like this, that God gives and God sends and God appoints people to lead his church, mostly from within the congregation that they come to serve, but sometimes from outside. And we're going to look again at that matter of bringing in someone from outside. And what do they do? Well, they manage the affairs of the church, they shepherd, they care, uh, mostly by word, ministry of the word and prayer. And that answers the question, how do they do it? How do they do it? The Bible seems to uh, know nothing else than teamworking and ministry of the word and prayer. That's, in a nutshell, how they do it. And I put a lot of conclusions that we came to last time, which I'll whiz through. Jesus is the ultimate elder, an overseer and shepherd. He looks after his flock. It's right and necessary to be concerned for the future church to have elders. It's not just one man, but a team. Being old is not a disqualification, neither is being younger. The idea of elder seems to carry with it the idea of wisdom. The quality of their life matters. The quality of their doctrine matters. In other words, it's not just a question of having a good heart. It's to be, uh, to, to be able to teach accurately and truthfully. Uh, there's an ability required to deploy the health-giving message to encourage and to contradict wrongsayers. And the apostolic word... Sorry, this is how are they appointed via the apostolic word, via the congregation. It is the Holy Spirit who appoints elders. And it is a serious spiritual matter. We find the appointing of elders accompanied by prayer and fasting in the New Testament. So those are things that we, we've looked at before. Okay, that should, none of that should be a surprise because I copied it all off the, the sheets before. Although you might have been asleep. You might yet be asleep. You might be asleep now. So my question this morning is, is there anything else that, is, that needs to be said at this point? And I've got three things that I would like to add. Uh, three points. The second one is quite a large point. The first one is quite a short point. And the third one goes all over the place. So here are three more points. So the first point is this. 
that this model of eldership is a flexible one. The, the New Testament is quite sparing with details and therefore it's quite adaptable into different situations. So if you are in Manhattan, you can have elders in your big sophisticated church where opera singers sing during the collection. Uh, you can also run a church in a Cambodian village with elders. It's as flexible as that. You can have elders with PhDs in historical theology who will inadvertently quote things to you in Latin, ex nihilo. And they, you can also have elders whose main qualification is that they ran a shoe shop and they have prayerfully and wisely read the Bible and they are people who can give wisdom and prayer into the lives of the congregation where they're appointed. There are elders who have management skills to manage a church of a thousand, you know, if you're looking after a small church, or 3,000 or 5,000 or whatever, a world away from my experience. And you can have elders who are fully equipped with the patience and love to care for a church of 15. It's a very flexible model. That was my first point, and I've done the first point. Here's the second point. I want to go back to this matter of appointing within and calling people from outside. There is an expectation of elders arising within a church, and there is a precedent for calling in specialists or something like that from outside. So let's do those one bit at a time. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, which I think leads us in the direction of uh, preparing and training people from the inside of the existing fellowship. So it's Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 14. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14 speak of the risen, conquering Christ and quote the thought of a conquering king who gets gifts and indeed prisoners from the place he's conquered, quoting, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. That's in verse 7. And then Paul says that's what Jesus does, verse 11. It was Jesus... He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on to talk about, in verse 16, the body being built up together as every part does its work. So let's just pause on this one for a moment. These are gifts from the conquering Savior. He gives uh, apostles, who are the foundations of the New Testament, and the prophets... I think in the New Testament, the prophets are not quite the same as Old Testament prophets. Uh, I think these are people who minister the, the word of the apostles. Uh, we have evangelists, uh, gospel people, 
Now, does he mean the gospel writers or does he mean gospel workers? But when we get to pastors and teachers, we know exactly what he means because we definitely have pastors and teachers. And what they are there to do is to prepare God's people for works of service. And the word is diaconias, which means to serve. Uh, Actually, that's the word for a, a waiter in Greek, somebody who serves and brings food and drink. So he says that it's the, it's the task of the pastors and teachers to pass that on, to pass on ability, information, training, so that the people of God can be serving. And the result of this is in verse 12, so that the body of Christ may be built up And uh, it goes on to talk about the results of that, aiming for unity of faith and knowledge and maturity and the body growing up and being built up. So without trying to take everything in that passage, I deduce that pastors and teachers are there to train other people to serve. That's what it says they're there to do. And this service produces a maturity in the congregation, in the body. And this maturity is to do with the working and functioning of all the different parts of the body. So I'll just stop and say that's what it says in the Bible. And it's an interesting question to say, is this happening? Interesting question to say, do we find that people who gather here as we have done this morning are actually being prepared for works of service and are actually serving it's an interesting question isn't it and then I could say um, make it from general to being specific and saying would you say of yourself if you've come along to this church for any significant amount of time that you have a been prepared to serve helped to serve and is that happening because what it doesn't say of course is a a church full of spectators who who just let one or two people do everything so I just that's my first port of call that the pastors and teachers train others for works of service and my second port of call is 2 Timothy chapter 2 That's not what I meant at all, is it? Oh dear. I meant the pass on to, I think I meant 1 Timothy. No, I didn't. What did I mean? I need some rescue here. Is it 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy. I want the bit about passing on to reliable people. Reliable me. 2. That's it. Two, yeah, it's the one that put me off. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. 
endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so he goes on. But I just want to light on that sentence in the middle. The things you heard from me, the Apostle Paul, through many witnesses, entrust or hand on to reliable, that's to say faithful men, who will be qualified to teach others. And that's worth stopping on that one. Because part of Timothy's task was to perpetuate the gospel by a faithful uh, men, able men, people who could teach others. And if you follow the sequence of it, Timothy had learned something from the apostle, the things you heard from me. And I'm going to make a little bit of a point of this, that Paul did say things and he did teach things and it was possible to say you heard it, you grabbed it, you got it, you can now pass that on to somebody else. He learned a body of teaching. And there were many witnesses. And I looked what the commentators say about the many witnesses. Was it that Paul was doing his talking, Timothy sitting listening, and a lot of other people are watching this happen, so the thing you learned in the presence of many witnesses? Or was it that Paul did his teaching, Timothy listened, Paul taught somebody else, and the somebody else said it to Timothy, and it was exactly the same as what Paul had said direct, and then somebody else heard it from Paul, and then said it to Timothy, and that was exactly the same, and you've got multiple pathways that the word from the apostle came to Timothy, and you know that you got it right, because everybody who told it to you said exactly the same thing. Maybe that's what it meant. But the things you have heard from me uh, through many witnesses, that's what needs to be passed on to other people. And you pass it on to people who can then pass that on to other people themselves. They're qualified to teach others. And this is a very important thought, isn't it? This is the reason for having training courses. So it's the reason why there is in Sussex the Sussex Gospel Ministry Training Course. And some of you here have been on the Sussex Gospel Ministry Training Course. It is fulfilling this, um, this command to teach other people so that they can teach people going onwards. Timothy was working in a particular context and it doesn't say send them off somewhere to learn this. He says you do this. So that seems to imply that while the churches can get together to help one another on this, there is a, a, a responsibility on the local church to be training people up. Perhaps with the assistance of the college, the um, academic world, but not taken completely out of the hands of the church, but part of the church's responsibility. So that, that tells us that we should be training people. And, and actually that's what we're trying to do um, at, at the moment. And we should pray for training. It's an important function of the church to be training up the next generation so that they can pass that on to the following generation. 
That's an important thing. That was part of my second point. And um, once again, one of my slides has disappeared, and I was looking for it this morning. I've no idea where it went. But I'll, I'll tell you what it was going to... It was going to say, what is this apostolic word? Paul could say to the elders in Ephesus, he could say, I have not hesitated to declare to you the whole will of God. Old-fashioned language says the whole counsel of God. Got that? That he says, it's not on the screen, so you've got to remember it. Um, He said to the elders at Ephesus, I declared to you the whole counsel of God. Meaning to say that he didn't miss out an important part of the gospel that somebody else has to come and fill in later. That the whole thing, the whole body of teaching was there in principle. Obviously you can expand on it and you can elaborate it, you go into detail, but the whole thing was there in the message of Paul. And I think that's the thought with Timothy. I passed on to you to the whole thing. Jesus has the same thought in John 17 where he speaks about his uh, first generation apostles. He says, I've given them the word, praise to his father, I've given them the word you gave me. They've received that word and through that word other people will be saved. So there's a completeness about it and there's a, a, a wholeness about it. If it was incomplete, then okay, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons could come along and say, well, you've got the Bible, but there's some important things missing, and we can supply them. But Paul wouldn't let us do that. He'd say, no, I've given you the whole counsel of God. There's there's no important component missing. That's why uh, your Bible, if it's anything like my Bible, has got a, a last page and a cover it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, um, a lever arch file where you can clip in extra pages when more revelation comes along because Paul didn't manage to tell us everything and Jesus didn't manage to tell us everything, so we've got more pages to add. Is that right? Is your Bible like mine? Yes. yes. Good. What is this message? Well, here on the screen is the... statement, which I think is out there on the, in, in the uh, lobby, which summarizes the gospel that Paul taught. And uh, you can read it on your way out. You might not want to read the whole thing from the screen here. But it, says, it tells us about God, who is three in one. He exists eternally in three distinct but equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is unchangeable in his holiness, justice, wisdom, and love. He is the almighty creator, savior, and judge who sustains and governs all things according to his sovereign will for his own glory. So it says that's, that's the word about God. And it says about the Bible. God has revealed himself in the Bible, which consists of the Old and New Testaments alone. Alone. Don't add any more to it. The word was inspired by God through human authors so that the Bible as originally given is in its entirety the word of God without error and fully reliable 
in fact and doctrine. The Bible alone speaks with, human, with final authority and is always sufficient for all matters of belief and practice. So that's the summary of the main points about the Bible. And it goes on to speak about the human race as being sinful and speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, living a sinless life in obedience to the Father. He taught with authority and all his words are true. On the cross he died in the place of sinners, bearing God's punishment for their sin, redeeming them by his blood. He rose from the dead and in his resurrection body ascended into heaven where he is exalted as Lord of all. He intercedes for his people in the presence of the Father. And I won't read it all out, I don't think, but there are main points about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and about the future. And that's a summary of the word, the message, which... Paul spoke to Timothy. Timothy says, I'm going to teach that to other people and they teach it to other people and that's us. We have heard this message from the apostles that's in the Bible and people have taught it to us, haven't they? And it's our job to be teaching that onwards to others. So let me just say where we've got to. We were talking about people from within the church and we were talking about training them up and the focus of this training is that they believe and teach the apostolic gospel that is to say the gospel message which the apostles had in the first place that's the only message there is that's the complete message that's the one that is to be taught and it's summarized in such statements as that Okay, so I'm still on my second point, which says, although there is an expectation of elders arising with the church, there is a precedent for calling in specialists from outside. So what about the specialists from outside? Let's go back and revisit this. This was in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, we read in verse 19 that those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. and He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here's the counterexample of the specialist brought in from outside. And it's worth just spending a moment or two looking at it. It says in verse 20 that there was gospel telling going on. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene went to Antioch and told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So it wasn't as though there was no gospel. Uh, there, there was gospel. And it was being successful. There were good things happening. So we're not talking about everything being in disarray and in a mess. Good things were happening. Verse 23, when he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. So Paul, uh, Barnabas, who was sent to investigate this, said, this is good. I, I'm very glad about what's happening. And there were a lot of converts. Verse 24, uh, it says, doesn't it, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So it, the Lord was blessing it. The thing that was happening is that there is new, a new situation developing ethnically and culturally that previously they were in the habit of speaking only to Jews, verse 19. But these uh, bold, radical innovators from Cyprus began speaking to people who weren't Jews. And many of these non-Jews believed. So these are people who don't know the Old Testament. These are people who don't have a, a background in knowing who God is and so on. So that is why this new person is brought in. So in verse 26, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and brings him to Antioch. And what they actually do is they teach the Christians there. So we notice that the work was not in sin. He's not saying that something terribly mistaken that has to be repented of. It wasn't wrong and needing correction. But there was a need, a special need, that they couldn't meet from within their own ranks. And in this case, the need is to teach converts who don't know the Old Testament. And who is the person who so well understands the Old Testament that he can bring this into a Gentile context and see how it affects the Gentiles? Well, the answer is Saul of Tarsus. So get on the first chariot out of here and go and get Saul of Tarsus. And that's exactly what he did. And, and it is a sort of headhunting operation, isn't it? it's interesting that he, he, they don't say, well, let's put an advert in whatever Christian newspaper we've got. He says, I know exactly who we need. He's already busy. He's not twiddling his thumbs. But we need that guy more than they need him. So they went, and it is a sort of headhunting, isn't it? They went to get him from somewhere to, to somewhere else where he could be more use. And nowadays, we don't have the, the issues of um, um, suddenly having people in the, in the church who don't, don't know the Old Testament. That's been a, an issue for a long, long time. We've got the hang of that. But there are specialist skills that uh, people have. For example, running a larger church. 
It's different running a smaller church to running a larger church. And that, that, there are that specialist skills for that. Church planting is something that some people are particularly good and gifted at, and they know about that. Running a church on multiple sites is something that most people won't have experience of, but some people might have specialist knowledge. Uh, particular gifts in apologetics. So there are some pastors and ministers who are particularly good at speaking to audiences that are uh, unbelieving, hostile, coming from a different worldview. So Ravi, what's the, that, that chap's name? Zachar? You tell me, Zacharias. I think Tim Keller is particularly good at this, isn't he? Presenting the gospel to people who are immersed in a completely different world. So there are some examples of specialist skills that churches might say, we need somebody from outside because none of our lot can, knows very much about that. So that was my second point. And the second point is, that there is an expectation of elders arising within a church, there is also a precedent for calling in specialists from outside. Okay, that was my second point. Here's my third point. My third point is that there is more to leadership than maintenance. There's, there's more to what churches should expect of and receive from their elders than simply keeping things ticking over. That's what I'm saying, and I'm going to try and prove that to you. And I'm going to admit that it's difficult to get this thought simply by looking at the qualifications for elders. So we've done that. We've looked in in detail at the places where uh, the qualities of elders are described. And I think what those qualities are don't appoint somebody who doesn't meet those. I think that's what those is. Don't appoint somebody who doesn't meet those qualifications. It's not saying appoint everybody who does meet those qualifications. It's saying don't appoint somebody who doesn't meet those qualifications. And, but that doesn't tell us this bit. We could possibly press the button of shepherd and say if people are being shepherded, and led, where are they being led to? So we could do it that way. And that might be a profitable thought. So do shepherds, for example, lead people to Jesus Christ? Or do shepherds lead people up the garden path? So I know some of you have been in churches where you're not convinced that the, the pastor, shepherd, elder, leader is actually leading people to Jesus Christ but it's just leading them to nonsense and rubbish and pointlessness. So where do shepherds lead their people to is a good question. But I'd like to do it this way. I'd like to say, let's go back to that larger question of where do elders fit into the big plan of God? I think this is where Paul got his direction from. So would you like to look, at, look with me at Isaiah chapter 2 as a representative chapter? And I invite you to think this thought, that when the Apostle Paul looked in the Bible to see what was he doing, 
he would not have looked in the New Testament because he hadn't written it yet. He would look in the Old Testament because that was the Bible. And he would say, what am I involved with? What do I find myself involved with all of a sudden through Jesus Christ? And I would say he would look at Isaiah chapter 2 and he would get an answer from that. Here's what Isaiah chapter 2 says. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, and Paul would be thinking, in the last days, through Jesus Christ we are in the last days. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the learned Rabbi Paul would have been thinking, now what does this mean? Does this actually mean that the physical, geographical city of Jerusalem is going to be lifted up higher, that God's going to put, put an earthquake under it and lift it up higher, and that all the nations will get on their chariots and horses and, and, and walk their way to Jerusalem. And I think he would have thought, actually, that's not the way God is going to do things in the New Testament. I think Paul would have said, this is a visionary picture of the New Testament church. This is a visionary picture of the importance of the community of God through Jesus Christ, rather than through being at such and such a latitude and longitude. And he says that this place is lifted up, not because it's been put on stilts, but because it is so important to the plan of God. And that as the gospel is proclaimed, people will come from all different places to believe in the Lord Jesus. And I think he would have taken that as a powerful vision the vision of many people from all nations coming to the Lord. So I picked on this one, but there's many, many other places you get a similar, exciting, prophetic vision of what God will do in the New Testament times. <coughs> Excuse me. And that vision, I would say, in its power, in its comprehensiveness, in its vividness, in its reality, is the vision that's meant to drive New Testament churches. I think New Testament churches say, ought to look at this and say, I realize it's sort of picture language, but isn't it exciting? That's what we're involved in. That's the whole thing that we are um, at work to, to, to fulfill. This is what we're caught up in. And in a church like ours, you might look round and say, I can see people from different nations. I can see there's somebody from Poland. I can see there's somebody from Wales. I can see there's somebody from Italy. I can see there's somebody from Nigeria. Somebody from England, even. And look, this is happening. The Lord is, is bringing people to, uh, to himself in this way. And I think this vision is the vision that propelled the New Testament and was meant to propel the New Testament leaders and they're to turn that vision into strategy and to say, well, here we are 
in Antioch. What can we do to fulfill this vision? Or here we are in Rome. What can we do to fulfill this vision? Or here we are in South Chile. What can we do to fulfill this vision? Or here we are in Preston Circus in Brighton. What can we do to fulfill this vision? There's the vision before us. It's sort of vivid and pictorial. But on the ground, what are we going to do? What next step shall we take for that to happen here? And I will, I, I, I'm trying to convince you that leaders are meant to think those thoughts. They're meant to catch the vision and then put it into a strategy to say, this is what we do next. This is the next plan that we put into operation starting tomorrow or starting in August or whenever it is, but these are the steps we're actually going to take to make that happen. And I'd like to give you um, an example. So let's go back to Nehemiah, which uh, was read to us. I had a lot of trouble finding Nehemiah when Ray was reading. I found it before and then it disappeared from my Bible. I found it again. So I'm going to talk for a little while in case you're just working out where Nehemiah is. Oh, I don't know. I've got a moment. 343 in that one. And what I want to say about Nehemiah is not that he's a, a, a church elder, but he's a spiritual leader. And it's worth looking at the way this function of leadership operated in Nehemiah. So as we've seen, he saw the city of God destroyed and its gates burned with fire. And he knew what the vision for the city was, didn't he? He knew that that wasn't right. He knew that God's plan was that his city would be built and in that part of uh, in, in the Old Testament times, that literally meant building a city, you know, with bricks and sand and cement and whatever things you used in those days. The vision is implemented differently now, but it's the same vision. He knew what the vision of the city was, and he cared about it. And we saw how much he cared, because he wept, didn't he? When it wasn't like it should be, he wept. And he prayed. And clearly there was in his heart a vision of what it ought to be. And a, a realistic sense of what it actually was. And a prayer. And Alistair Begg put it very nicely. Preacher Alistair Begg. Something like this. He says he saw what it ought to be. And where they actually were. And he, had, and he saw the ability of Almighty God to bridge that gap. He saw what it ought to be, where they were, and the ability of Almighty God to bridge that gap. And as such, he's functioning as a spiritual leader. And if you read on, you'll find in very practical ways, he says, we're at point A, we want to get to point H, let's say. So we need to find B, C, D, E, F, G to get to H. And he has the vision and he puts it into a strategy. He gets people together, motivates them, and they do indeed work together for the building of the city. And I'm trying to convince you that 
that attitude and quality and role of Nehemiah is what is required in the building of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's the elders, the eldership, that, to whom that falls. Let me give you another example of Paul. So we're going to go to Romans 15. And he writes this long letter to the Roman Christians. And you might think that he'd written it just because he was looking for a publishing opportunity for a piece of systematic theology. But I think there's more to it than that. He certainly does give them loads of theology. He explains his, the whole counsel of God in considerable detail. But he does say that he has a reason for it. Romans 15, verse 23, he says, Now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your your company for a while. That's what he says. Interesting just to pick up on the way he's thinking. Because I think he has the same vision of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the international scope of it, the fact that many more people ought to love and follow Jesus than than currently do. And he can see what it ought to be, and he can see the steps that needed to be taken to implement that. And that's what he's talking about, isn't he? He says, I've been working in these regions, verse 23, but I've got a plan. And when I've finished here, I plan to go to Spain. Now, excuse me, he's not going to Spain on holiday. Uh, Some of us might aspire to a plan to go to Spain on a holiday. But that's not what he's going. He says, they haven't heard the gospel yet. So I have a plan to go there. That's where I'd like to go. And in order to get to point S in Spain, from point A in wherever I am now, I need to go through this, 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 this. And Rome, you're on that, you're on that uh, line. And so in order to get to Spain, he says, I'm planning to visit you, this uh, 24, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through. So he he has a plan. He has a vision and a strategy to implement it. And this involves uh, getting the Romans on board and them helping him. And I think that's why he wrote the letter. I think he's saying, you don't know me. You don't know what I... You've heard of me, but I, I want you to know exactly what I believe, exactly what I think. So here's a long letter. And when you've read it, I want you to be ready to welcome me because my plan is to go to Spain and I shall need bed and breakfast, a bit of food. I shall, my sandals will probably have worn out by then, so if any of you have got some spare sandals, that would be really great. And a few things like that because I'm on my way to Spain and I want you to be part of my plan. Are you with me? Do you see the same thing in in, uh, Paul as there was in Nehemiah? A a vision, a strategy, a motivating of people. And I think that is 
the sort of spiritual leadership that uh, the kingdom requires and that there need to be people to implement. So those are my three points. And I may well have lost one or two slides on the way, but I think I've... So here are the three points. Number one was a short point. The model of eldership is actually very flexible. So the eldership in one church might not look like the eldership in another church. The eldership in one church might even be dignified with the title vicar and rector. What on earth are they? But uh, we know they're elders. They just got the wrong name written over the office. Uh, this works in New York and it works in Newport. My second point was, although there's an expectation of elders arising within the church, there is a precedent for calling in specialists from outside. So this puts us in line for in-house training and development. That's what we're meant to be doing. It also points out the importance of the apostolic message. That's the subject matter. That's the thing that has to be passed on. This word, this message. And it allows us to think of headhunting or in some other method acquiring from outside people with specialist skills and experience. And I suggest that in order to do that, we would need to look at our own situation and say, what specialist skills do we need? And my third point is that there's more to leadership than maintenance. That leadership needs a biblical vision of Christ's large, exciting, global purposes. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Gird on your sword, O mighty one. Go out and achieve great victories. That's the vision that needs to propel churches through their leaders. That's the vision that Nehemiah saw. That's the vision that Paul saw. And that's the vision that we need to see and we need leaders who will see that too. I've finished. Um, this will be a, a matter that we'll be discussing at our members meeting coming up and in the letter to members some of this material will be mentioned. But uh, I'm very happy to talk about this um, as the time goes on because it's a very important matter for us as a church. But in order to close our meeting, we will sing, Church, arise and put your armour on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. Let's stand and sing when the music starts.